Okay, hey, welcome to the Backyard Professor Sunday Firesides live session. Woohoo! Man, my hair looks like heck, doesn't it? I've got to finish my protein drink. These are good. So, here we are. Yeah, baby. Yeah, baby. Hey, let me turn off this racket. Although it's good stuff. Oh, we're close. Close to the end. Oh, I've got to grim myself. Holy cow, I should have combed my hair before I started this, huh? I just took a cold shower. It was 98 degrees today. Woo! Way too warm. All right, that's good. All right, hey, welcome, everybody. Good to see you all. Holy Shishka and Bob. Who all is here? Mark Crispin. You demand Burrow Bikes. Woo-hoo-hoo. Yeah, baby. Joe, how are you, Joe? Doug Vincent, man. Good to see you, Dan Vogel. Good evening to whomever. Yeah, happy birthday. Harriet Atkinson. Hello, my darling. How are you? Patty Cake. Hello, my other darling. How are you? Lorena Cornella. Hello, my other darling. How are you? <laughs> Wow, we've got a whole bunch of darlings. Paul Osborne, good to see you, my friend. Tim Rathbone, welcome. JB Maybe, yeah. Hi from New York City. You betcha. Hello, New York. Okay, Zanny Banani, how are you? Welcome. I don't think I've seen your name on here before. Glad you showed up and hope it's worth your effort. It will be. I've got a fabulous show tonight. I'm going to show you what I look like drinking my <laughs> premier protein drink, 30-gram protein. Now, listen, this is good stuff. Ever since COVID, they begin putting on energy and immune system protection. Yeah, yeah anything to make you buy their crap, right? Yeah. But it is good besides a strawberry cheesecake or cream or whatever. And I love strawberries, so. I missed Sunstone this week. I hope you guys didn't. I hope some of you got there. Um, yes, everybody smash that like button. And then when you fix it, go ahead and push it so that I have a like up here. <laughs> uh, 
I got a hold of a very important friend who did a very, very important study of the Jaredite barges. The story of the Jaredites in the Book of Ether, in the Book of Mormon, which is, of course, the most correct book of any book. I'll drink to that. That's what the Joseph Smith said, right? Joseph Smith wouldn't lie, would he? No, I didn't think so. Yeah. Sounds like somebody might be trying to get a hold of me. Let me double check real quick. Nope, nope. Okay. The, uh, hope everybody had a good week. The Jaredite barges, the story of the Jaredites coming across the ocean is what I want to explore tonight. And I will, oh, Paul Osborne, you did too. Paul's trying to convince us that he never believed the barges, even when he was a member. Come on, everybody believes everything when you're a member. Otherwise, the brethren, the brethren will get a hold of you in a personal priesthood interview, and they will assess your worthiness to even be in their magnificent yeah, baby. I think next time I get interviewed, which will be never, but if I ever do get interviewed again, and they ask me any question of whatever, I'll go, yeah, baby. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> just to bug the hell out of them. Because, you know, if you're, if you have loud laughter and you're boisterous and all, it will offend the Holy Spirit sensitivity. And we can't have that. We must be nice and reverent and fold our arms and talk in a soft voice, to which I will say, hey, Bishop, let's go dirt bike riding or something. <coughs> okay. Let's, oh, hey, Kim, KM, John Rosbarski, welcome. Newton Lemos, welcome, Bubba. All right. Loud laughter isn't loud in Hawaii, just aloha. <laughs> Burrow bikes, that's awesome. Just aloha. So here we go. Ha. <laughs> okay, there's my aloha. Okay, that's 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 I'm I'm calling off the show. No, that was good, bro. Bikes, that was awesome. You always have the good jokes, Peter Higgs. Hey, good to see you, my brother. Okay, Brazil connecting. Hello, my captain, my captain Newton Lemos from Brazil. Hello, isn't this amazing? I've got people from New York City. I've got people from Brazil. I've got people from Ohio and Iowa and Florida and Texas and Idaho and Oregon and Washington. Huff Daddy, hey, good to see you. Okay, hey, I've said, I've said hi to everybody now for the last half an hour. It's time for me to get with it. I have a good friend whom I got to know on the Shades message boards discuss Mormonism, and he goes by the handle of Dr. W. Now, Dr. W is one of those rare souls who really doesn't seek to offend, but he does seek to enlighten. And he is a superb scientist. He is a phenomenal thinker. 
And he's just one of those down-to-earth guys that just tells it like it is. And there's tremendous value in having this type of an approach to the Scripture. Uh, he doesn't believe at all in the historicity of the Book of Mormon. So when he put his science cap on, <clears throat> oh, I thought I had my hat. I wore a hat earlier today. I was going to put my science cap on. Boy, my hair needs to be covered. I look like a wreck. So when he puts his science cap on, he just examines things in a step-by-step -step basis. Years ago, he explored the Jaredite barges, and it just blew us all away. We said, man, we'd never, ever thought of something so fantastically interesting the way you did. Well, I recently contacted him, and I asked him, hey, where is that discussion? Do you have, by any chance at all, if, if we can believe in miracles, did you miraculously save a copy of that? Because I would love to present it. And lo and behold, the angel Moroni did show up in his room in a beam of light and told him which HTTP address to go to to get this discussion that he had. And he did. And he sent it to me. So, Dr. W, I dedicate this particular live session to your wonderful and insightful analysis of the Jaredite barges with this challenge to Mormons, especially the apologists. I would like to see how you would respond to all of these issues involving the Jaredite barges and see if you can try to make this what I would consider to be an obviously made-up story that could not possibly have happened in history with real people and having this real experience. I would like to see how you would defend this. I couldn't, but I'd like to see some apologists try. Perhaps Lou Midgley could put his thinking cap on, or Terrell Gibbons or someone, you know. The uh, I'm going to just read a lot of selections here, so I, I better get hustling now. Hey, T.O., good to see you. I see you showed up. Good deal, good deal. Alessa Gaylene, hello. I called you Allison all week last week, for which I apologized lavishly, and I swore I was going to call you Alyssa this time. <laughs> so thank you for showing up. Okay. Yes, we know, Paul, it is impossible and it can't be defended. <clears throat> At least as an actual situation and occurrence. That's true. There may be another way you can read it. I wouldn't know what that way is. But as actual history, no, I'm going to destroy the Jaredite barges tonight on this podcast. Among the many anachronisms, the inconsistencies, the outlandish claims made in the Book of Mormon, my favorite is the saga of the journey from the Middle East to the New World by the Jaredites. This apparently occurred between 2500 and 2000 B.C. 
as an experienced ocean sailor, and this is why he took on discussing this situation. So here we have a wonderful opportunity to learn from a real ocean sailor the validity of the Jaredite barges, if that story has any validity. And he says, I've tried several times to convince myself that such a trip could be made. I've considered my own knowledge of ocean sailing and made reference to global marine navigation charts with prevailing wind and surface current speed and direction data. I've considered academic research from mainstream science concerning the Mesopotamian shipbuilding industry and the types and the uses of ships produced between 3000 and 2000 BC. Unfortunately, even based on the most favorable assumptions that can be made in all of these areas, it is abundantly clear that such a trip could not have been made. This conclusion does not rest on just one deal breaker factor or consideration, however, as I will, I will show based on the hard sciences of oceanography, meteorology, physics, and chemistry, such a journey is far from possible today, and it was far from possible in ancient times. This post also considers fatal problems with the Hunibli claim that the sea voyage started on the east coast of Asia and involved a crossing of the Pacific Ocean. We consider the claim in the Book of Mormon that from 2500 to 2300 BC time frame, a group of approximately, now this is the Jaredite story, a group of approximately 22 people. They were able to build eight watertight barges, barges, that's what the ether calls them, with no means of propulsion. <clears throat> propulsion, sorry. They then provisioned, they launched, and they rode along in these drifting craft from somewhere in the Middle East to the New World in 344 days. These craft were built as completely watertight, so that closable air holes had to be provided for ventilation. We read that holes were made in the top and in the bottom, which holes could be plugged to prevent water from entering the vessel. According to the Book of Mormon, these vessels were built so that they could be safely submerged by wave action for short periods. We are told that fire was not used on board these barges. We are told that the barge interiors were lit, were lit by glowing stones miraculously made to radiate light by the hand of God. And here's the quote, The Lord said unto the brother of Jared, What will ye that I should do that ye should have light in your vessels? For behold, ye cannot have windows, for they will be dashed in pieces. Neither shall ye take fire with you, for ye shall not go by the light of fire. That's Ether 2.23. Well, since this aspect of the story is directly described as a miracle, in noting that the mention of windows is an obvious anachronism, it will not be considered further except to state that if God works according to natural laws, the only means of making stones glow would be through the use of radioactive materials. Any solid-state materials that glowed would have been dangerous indeed for human occupants exposed to the radiation products and the byproducts, of course, in a closed and poorly ventilated space for 50 weeks. As a relatively safe radioactive light source, tritium 
would have been the best among all possible choices. However, that's a gas. <laughs> so we're beginning to see already some very major problems with this particular and peculiar story. As real history, which it can't be. So in considering possible journeys or possible routes for the crossing, it's important to keep in mind that the seagoing vessels of the Jaredites were barges. That's what they were called. In fact, according to the Book of Ether, they were constructed as semi-submarines or submersibles, I should have said. It should be noted that no wooden semi-submersible has ever been successfully demonstrated in our modern era. From a marine architecture standpoint, such a vessel would be very difficult, if not impossible, to build and maintain leak-free at sea for any length of time, let alone almost one year. We are told that the Jaredite barges were the length of a tree and peaked in the ends and were sealed tightly, top and bottom, like unto a dish. So these barges were, uh, I've always envisioned in my mind like a hollow banana, something like that, except the length of a tree, whatever that length is. The occupants or crew stayed inside these closed vessels, and when necessary, they opened one or more of the air holes for ventilation. The critical aspect of these barges is that they had no propulsion. And why is that such a big point? I'm glad I asked, because now I'm going to answer my own question. They depended on ocean currents to carry them from the Middle East to the New World. And the Book of Ether indicates that they could be steered. Oh, Lord, in them there is no light. Whither shall we steer? And also we shall perish, for in them we cannot breathe. Save it is the air which is in them, therefore we shall perish. Ether 2.19 no power means no steering. This is critical. This is very interesting how Dr. W propounds this. It is a fact from physics, and it's the same physics in 2500 BC as we have right now today on our oceans. Physics has not changed in that length of time. That in order for any marine vessel to be steered, it must have some means of moving relative to the water around the vessel. A barge, by definition, is a vessel without propulsion. A vessel without some kind of a propulsion, such as sails or oars or an engine and screw, cannot be steered. It can move in no other way than as carried by the ocean currents. Now, there could be some possible effect of the wind, of course, uh, but the whole freeboard and superstructure, but if there's no cells, no sails and no superstructure, uh, 
relatively little freeboard, that is the vertical hole above the top of the water. There's very little height for the wind to catch hold of and blow and move. The effects of the wind would have been relatively insignificant for the vessel design. When it comes to marine navigation, these barges would have been little more than large pieces of driftwood. Joseph Smith's description of barges as being steered is but one of the many internal inconsistencies in this Book of Mormon story. The long story short, the journey is simply impossible then, and it would be impossible for today. Because these barges had no means of propulsion and could only drift along in the ocean currents, with little surface area upon which with the wind could act in the direction of travel. Remember, the ends were peaked, or else they were at least brought to a point. One need only consult ocean current directions and speeds along any possible route from the Middle East to the Western Hemisphere shows that a voyage such as that described in ether could not have happened, period. The ocean currents are simply the wrong kind of currents. He goes into great elaborate detail on all of this, naming all of the ocean currents, describing how just simply setting in and moving around would not have been possible. I'm going to skip over some of this because I want to get to the really brutal parts of this. The ocean currents won't work. One, their speed is too too funny, too, too fast in some instances, and too slow in others for the 344-day. And the other thing is they certainly do not lead you to an area where the Book of Mormon Jaredites would have lived, which according to the Heartland and Joseph Smith's early descriptions would have been in New York State. That's where the Hill Cumorah is, as I talked about last week. Oh, and uh, by the way, Mr. Midgley, thank you. I got your book. Mr. Midgley mailed me a copy of his book, The North American Model, and I did receive that, and I am looking at it. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. So he shows how he shows how the Western uh, transit, the most logical point for the Jaredite departure would have been the south end of the Arabian Peninsula. The Mediterranean is generally void of the surface currents necessary for a direct Middle East to Western Hemisphere crossing on, of the Mediterranean and the Atlantic. Even if they had launched into the Mediterranean and made it into Atlantic, which is highly unlikely without power, or if they had launched into the Atlantic directly as they approached the eastern seaboard of North America, the strong north flowing Gulf Stream. Now, currently, it's going two to four knots, right? This would have picked them up and kept them at least five to ten miles offshore until they were well, way up in the North Atlantic, up near Canada, up into Canada the North Atlantic drift current would have most likely brought them back to Europe. They would not have, have sailed directly to the East Coast and, and stopped somewhere along the East Coast because the current, and you can see that on the uh, international weather forecasts, even today when the hurricanes come marching up the East Coast, 
they always are on the edge of the coast. Now, of course, they're damaging the coast, but they never make landfall and go into, they just follow the East Coast. If they come up through the Gulf, they cause terrific problems in Louisiana, Alabama, Georgia, Florida, Texas, New Orleans, and all that jazz. But then they move through and go off to the off the coast and then out into the ocean because that's how the current works. So launching from somewhere in the eastern part of the present-day Oman would have put them in the Agulas current, which would have carried them down to the tip of Africa. So had they been able to translate, transmit from the Bengula current, and this would highly be unlikely without power, they would have had to next transit to the northern branch of the equatorial current, again, unlikely without power, which would have eventually sent them into the Caribbean south of Haiti. This is a journey of 13,000 to 14,000 miles. This route passes through a meteorological zone known as the doldrums between the northern and southern trade wind zones. In the doldrums, wind winds are calm. It would have taken a major modification of world climate patterns for the winds to blow without ceasing in regions where the winds seldom blow at all. The ether account says the winds blew without ceasing for 344 days, which is entirely ridiculous with the ocean currents and the weather that we've had on record ever since records began. We've never seen anything like that, nor has anything like that ever been recorded, except in a book of Jaredites called Ether. So if the journey took <clears throat> 344 days as described in the book of Ether, what this would mean is the Jaredites would have had to travel at an average speed of a little over two miles an hour. Okay. So this translates roughly to 50 miles a day. Except for the Gulf Stream, all other currents they could have possibly encountered in the Atlantic on this routing move at a rate of less than nine kilometers or about 5.4 miles per day. At these average speeds, the journey would have required at least six years. Wind or no wind, wouldn't have mattered. So again, very problematic with the current ocean currents that we have. It's interesting that even in the moderate winds along the east coast of Africa, the Aguila current gives rise to sea conditions so severe that many large modern commercial vessels have been lost along the route, and so they've eventually stopped using this particular route because so many ships have been sunk by this. The chances of wooden vessels surviving this part of the passage in moderate to strong winds would be slim indeed. And yet we do read, the winds did never cease to blow toward the promised land. Well, the problems of the driftwood flotilla are numerous. Let's explore a few of these. The likelihood that a flotilla of eight drifting vessels could stay together in a group at sea for 344 days is truly quite ridiculous. 
it is vanishingly small. Try this thought experiment. Imagine you went to Southern Oman and launched eight large pieces of wood into the ocean. Let's assume they were 50-foot-long poles, wooden poles. You carved your name and identifying serial number. What are the chances you could find all of your poles had washed ashore at about the same place and all at the same time anywhere in the Western Hemisphere within one year? That's a pretty interesting challenge, isn't it? That'd be fun to see some enthusiastic Mormon try that. Well, from experience in trying to maintain a group of sail-powered vessels in visual contact with one another at sea, especially at night, even with the help of lights and radios, I can assure you that the chances of a group of eight drifting vessels staying together at sea for 344 days would be zero, especially in the face of continuous winds. So... Calculations for the provisions. Let's explore this. Calculations for the provisions for such a trip would require... Now, now this is what amazed me. <laughs> this is one of the most... This is one of those, oh, wow, moments in your research. It would require, provisions-wise, approximately... 40,000 kilograms, that is 40 metric tons, or approximately 100,000 pounds of food and water would be needed for the 22 members of the Jaredite Band for a 344-day journey. These calculations are made on modern sailboat passage, making weekly provision recommendations. This <laughs> doesn't count the animals. Now, the reason Dr. W said this went this route. See, this is his this is his uh, his realistic science thinking coming out to the forefront. He says, as for the animals, the book of ether says they took flocks of flocks of every kind. Well, we could easily multiply the 100,000 pounds by several fold now for the animals. However, since we have such little information as to the exact types and numbers of animals taken aboard, we will ignore this factor. But it's important to keep that factor in mind, right? So considering animals only exacerbates the food and water problem, which as shown below is already insurmountable. Okay, water contamination and food spoilage in route especially in the tropics, no matter from where the Jaredites would have begun to sail in the, well, or to float in these barges, they would have gone through the tropics on the ocean. With eight vessels, 
And again, depending on the number of humans and animals in each of those vessels, the main problem with provisions is not the weight or the volume of the food and water required. Although one can be assured that so laden these vessels would not have been, quote, light upon the water, unquote, as the book of Ether says. The main problem with provisioning is keeping the drinking water from going bad and the food from spoiling without refrigeration during a one-year voyage. This is an especially important problem considering that most of the trip now, regardless of the direction they went, would have been in the tropics. Much of the food would have been in the form of dried figs and dates, of course. These are high in calories and keep fairly well. Grains, meat, and other fruits, and most other foodstuffs and fruits would have been a real problem. There is also the problem of what containers would be used to store all the water for drinking and bathing. We know that in the ancient world, wine was shipped in amphora. Wood barrel making, copper technology, had not yet been developed in 2000 BC. So the problem that these clay vessels is they are heavy and they could easily be broken, especially if the ship were to pitch and roll in rough seas. We are told the Jaredites built vessels to contain the water. So whatever they were made of, they would have needed to be capable of holding more than 30 metric tons of water and keeping it potable in the tropics for many months. It is highly unlikely that this could have been done in 2500 BC. No fires means no cooked food. Another problem is that there were to be no fires aboard the Jaredite barges, making it impossible to boil water or cook the food. This would mean that the occupants had to live on dried or else some kind of a preserved food stuff with no means of making them safe by cooking them before eating in the heat and the humidity of the tropics in a closed vessel without sunlight and little ventilation. Most of the food, dried or not, would have spoiled within a matter of weeks. And they were on the ocean for 50 weeks, approximately. Now, Mesopotamian shipbuilding, 2000 to 3000 BC, according to Michaela, he went and looked up a, a author, a scholar on shipbuilding in ancient Mesopotamia. This era was surprisingly advanced, the shipbuilding techniques. The region used the inland seas and waterways and even some canals to transport goods, food, leather, uh, textiles, timber, stuff like that. By ship, the shipbuilding industry re required several types of imported woods, including cedar, because cedar would have been especially valuable for keels because of its single piece length and resistance to rot and decay. 
More interesting in terms of making the Jaredite barges tight like unto a dish was the use of the two types of bitumen that they used in ancient shipbuilding. The first was a soft bitumen, and the second is a harder, more asphalt-like material, perhaps on the order of a roofing tar. In Mesopotamian shipbuilding, these bitumen were the only means of sealing wooden ships to make them airtight or watertight. Bitumen, along with certain clays, were used both on the exterior and on the interior of the of the hole. There is little doubt that bitumen would have been necessary for the Jaredite barges because it was the only watertight sealing material available at the time, and indeed for more than 2,200 years hence. Anyone living in a bitumen-lined hole with only two air holes for ventilation in temperature above 85 degrees Fahrenheit Temperatures in Oman can reach 130 degrees Fahrenheit with no problem. They would be fortunate indeed to live for a year. The fumes given off by the bitumen are toxic and can be dangerous if closed in closed, poorly ventilated spaces, especially in warm weather. Yeah. No sealed barges in reviewing Michaela's well-researched and comprehensive work on ancient Mesopotamian shipbuilding. He says, this includes descriptions of the known ship types and the uses of those known ship types. There's no reference whatsoever to whole craft being closed or of any kind of ancient barges being built as described in the book of Ether. So we would have no idea whether Jaredites got their experience to build such boats other than the Lord revealed it to them according to the book of Ether. No fire means no whole resealing while they were en route to the Americas. So Michaela explains that it was also necessary to periodically replace the bitumen sealing the spaces between the wooden planks of the hole. This was done by scraping off the old bitumen, adding new bitumen, and heating the mixture in a pot with a fire to soften it so that it can be reapplied. Much like when we do rapose with our metalworking. I do rapose. I've done rapose metalworking, and I use a pot of bitumen. And, and you do have to reheat it to soften it, then uh, it'll harden, then you reheat it and re-soften it, and so on and so forth. The problem is that the Book of Ether specifically does say no fire was going to be on the barges. So there could be no whole seal repair while they were traveling. So that's a problem. Using the best technology available at that time frame, the inability to reseal the hole underway would have led to massive seawater leakage, which would eventually lead to the loss of the vessels. Air holes through hole plugs and hatches in wooden vessels, having a hole or an opening below the waterline in the hole of an ocean-going vessel made of wood present special problems. You don't say. <laughs> now let's analyze. I love how he's analyzing all of this material. This is so 
fascinating how he does this. Designing such boats with a workable watertight seal around any ports or hatches is also a problem. Shipbuilders of the time used wooden planks for the outer hull, and any spaces between those planks were caulked and sealed with tar. Of course, these structures had withstood tremendous forces in rough seas and would flex. And because they flex, of course, they begin to leak. So you have to constantly repair them. Bilge water, what today's modern campers call gray water. If built as described in the Book of Ether, it would not have been possible to remove the bilge water from these vessels at sea. The removal of water that leaks into a vessel requires that people with bailing buckets carry the water out onto the deck and throw it overboard. Well, if the passengers could not leave the vessel because the hatch was sealed tight and the breathing holes did not allow access to the upper deck, the boat would have eventually swamped. If the hatches were large enough to allow access to the deck, they could not have been resealed to sufficiently withstand being buried in the depths of the sea, and that is how the Book of Ether describes it, buried in the depths of the sea. So once opened at sea, because no fire was permitted to heat the ceiling tar. See all these problems coming up, these logistic issues that are just fatal against this being an actual event in history. The, the book of Ether says, For behold, ye shall be as a whale in the midst of the sea, for the mountain waves shall dash upon you. Nevertheless, I will bring you up again out of the depths of the sea. That's Ether 2.25. So the problem of bilge water removal would have been eclipsed by greater problems of removal of urine and feces of the human crew and the animals. If not removed soon after every urination or defecation, these materials would have severely contaminated the interior of the vessels, especially in heavy seas. Having experienced the failure of a head in a 50-foot sailboat and been unable to fix it for two days because of heavy seas, I would say that the interior of the barges would have been uninhabitable because of urine and feces contamination within a few weeks. So simple breathing holes. This is entirely inadequate for ventilation. Some type of forced ventilation system with forward, windward, facing ducts or scoops to bring fresh air into the craft and rear, leeward, facing scoops aft to help expel the denser air aft would have been required. On a 50-foot long vessel with a 14-foot beam, these holes could not have been closed for much more than an hour or so with animals on board. In heavy seas with winds continually blowing for 344 days, it's hard to see how adequate ventilation of the barges could have been maintained, especially in the tropics. That's always the catch with this issue, isn't it? 
no stops along the way. Now, the book of Ether leads us to believe that the winds did never cease to blow toward the promised land, okay? So this suggests that the trip was made without stopping for any kind of resupply, R&R, or fixing of the vessels. It was just a straight 344-day-long shot. It's highly unlikely that a wooden craft that was the length of a tree, and we're going to say about 50 feet, having several tons of cargo aboard and no power, could be safely beached and then relaunched. That's interesting, yeah. In Florida, we have a name for 50-foot vessels that end up on the shore with no power. We call them shipwrecks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No doubt. So anyone who suggests that there were stops along the way for an Atlantic crossing would need to point out where such stops could be made. Yeah, okay, well, where? A quick glance at a map of the South Atlantic Basin shows the problem here. There is only one island group in the South Atlantic that is even close to the drift current route, and it is so small it's not even on the map. On a Pacific transit, anyone suggesting a Pacific crossing must explain how the barges reached the North Equatorial countercurrent from the Arabian Peninsula or any other launching place in the Middle East or Mesopotamia, and then how they traveled against the South Equatorial Current, which would have taken them west instead of east, and thereafter managed to avoid shipwrecking their wooden craft on the reefs and shoals surrounding most Pacific islands or running around on the rock, ground on the rocks of the islands as they negotiated these waters without power or the ability to steer. I used negotiated deliberately instead of navigated because navigation implies steering control and these vessels didn't have any. In fact, being sealed in a boat that was likened to a dish with no portals, the crew could not even see where they were going or where they had been. So there is no way any kind of navigation would be possible. <laughs> yeah. Again, a glance at the map of currents shows that an unpowered transit from the Indian Ocean to the Pacific Ocean without experiencing an uncontrolled encounter with land could not be possible. The Nibley hypothesis, he mentioned that the Jaredites were not Hebrew. The question is, did he mean Semitic? But they were Asiatic. So according to the Nibley hypothesis, Asiatic Jaredites, who were threatened with language problems by the Lord, what they did is they crossed Asia to the Pacific, and then they crossed the Pacific in barges to the New World. This just gets better all the time. <laughs> Turns out that the ocean current in question this time would have been the very fast and quite wide Kuroshio current. This current would have delivered them to the American West Coast, probably Washington State or perhaps Oregon, in about 70 to 90 days, depending on where they launched. 
if this journey would have only taken 70 to 90 days without any fierce winds, then why did the Lord cause the winds to blow? Obviously, in the wrong direction even. And hold them at sea for 344 days. See, the story is just baloney, right? A glance at the map shows that stops along this route are also not feasible. And in fact, a 344-day crossing along this route would have included at least one North Pacific winter, and without fire and warmth, it is unlikely that anyone would have survived. Because you're in the Northern Pacific here, because of the current. You don't just boop, zip straight across to Washington. The current goes all the way up near the Arctic Circle and then back down, you see. So this analysis shows that because of many factors and beyond any reasonable doubt based on the hard sciences, and these hard sciences are the oceanography, the geography, the meteorology, the physics, and the chemistry now, the ocean crossing of the Jaredites described just did not happen. There is just no way that's going to happen. So, and when I was in seminary, and I concur with this, this is kind of how we, we saw it too. He says, when I was in seminary, we were taught that the hole in the bottom was put there so that if the barge rolled over, it would still be possible to get air into the crew compartment. <laughs> kind of cute, huh? Yeah. Well, it turns out, Depending on the overall weight, that is the volume density of the barges, opening a hole in the bottom, even if the top hole is sealed, could cause the barge to take on substantial water. An opening below the waterline in any vessel can be very dangerous. If a vessel is submerged, for example, water will flow into the hole through any opening in the hole until the inside air pressure and the outside water pressure equalize. You wouldn't be able to just pull the big cork, and if water starts gushing in, say, oh, whoops, and stuff it back in. Because you broke the bitumen seal on it, now it's going to come in. The pressure, and I mean, if it was the size of your thumb, then that's worthless. Nothing in this story makes any kinds of sense, right? That's the point. Another clue to the story's modern origin is, of course, the windows. The Lord helpfully tells the brother of Jared not to put windows in the barges because they will be dashed to pieces. Well, I'm not a scientist or a historian, but I'm pretty sure there was no such thing as glass windows in the time period of this story. I suppose an apologist would say that the Lord is referring to the barges being dashed into pieces, but I think it's pretty clear that Joseph Smith was thinking about window panes. So. And the Lord said unto the brother of Jared, What will ye that I should do that ye may have light in your vessels? For behold, ye cannot have windows, for they will be dashed in pieces. They, pointing back to the windows will be dashed into pieces. Neither shall you take fire with you, for you shall not have light by fire. Now, this is interesting because so there are so many factors involved in the 
utter ridiculousness of this story. And he brings up several of them that I think are very much interesting and worth pursuing. Many of these were raised by Kent Ponder. If any of you ever had experience with Kent Ponder, you were in for a treat. He was rough on me, man. When I was an apologist, I ran into him several times. <clears throat> so here are some bullet point thoughts that make you go, hmm. It doesn't make you go, yeah, baby. It makes you go, hmm, right? Here they are. Is it reasonable that the Lord would personally reveal detailed construction details for watertight and for airtight boats after the manner of barges which ye have hitherto built and not have the foresight to provide for basic breathing and seeing requirements? Interesting. I had never thought of that until I read this years ago. I thought, yeah, that is interesting. Is it reasonable that men experienced in building watertight and airtight boats would do all the planning, all of the material gathering, all of that construction of all eight of those vessels and finish all eight of them before the question of breathing and seeing occurred to any of them? <laughs> Brilliant question, yeah. And yet that's how the book of Ether presents it. They get done with these vessels, and then all of a sudden the brother of Jared goes, uh, oh, hey, uh, we ain't going to be able to see very well. And gosh, we got to have air. It wasn't until they were finished that they even thought of that. Is that even realistic? Here's another point to consider. <laughs> Considering that transparent glass window technology was an unknown technology and not yet invented, and during this time, is it reasonable for the Lord to explain you can't have windows for they will be dashed to pieces? Because the Jaredites would have had absolutely no idea what the Lord was talking about. Or is it more reasonable to assume that this account was written in post-window technology times by an author who was oblivious to the anachronism? Uh-huh. Yeah. Is it reasonable that eight boats, the length of a tree, we're told, is it reasonable that eight of them would be capable of carrying all of the animals, the fish, the fowl, and plant life to seed the respective life in the Americas. Ether 2, 1 through 3 says that's what happened. Is it reasonable to carry a year's supply of food and fresh water for onboard humans, animals, fish, fowl, bees, etc., in a boat the length of a tree and with 
without refrigeration? It has been estimated that a single animal eats over 1,000 pounds of grazing food in a year. And the, the record says they brought flocks of every kind. So I would assume that means more than six kind of animals. And they brought flocks. So I would assume that means at least three of each kind, right? And I'm being minimum. I'm minimizing this to try to, to see it as realistically as I can. But then they have to eat something. So surely some of those flocks were going to be what they ate. But being sealed in a dish, watertight dish, you have to slaughter the animal and clean out its guts. And that stuff stinks. I can assure you as a hunter, you don't want to be around it for very long. It gets real nasty bad. And it's a messy process. And you need lots of fresh water to clean it, etc. I mean, the problems just multiply when you really stop and think through the logistics of this. Is it reasonable to believe a story that humans would unstop one of the two holes for breathing only after breathing problems became noticeable? Inadequate oxygen, hypoxia, is one of the great dangers for pilots flying at high altitudes. The onset of hypoxia is not recognizable by first creating a state of euphoria leading to unconsciousness. What did they do to prevent hypoxia during sleep? Did they keep someone on watch who recognized the onset of euphoria and unstopped the hole? Or did they bring a year's supply of canaries to provide early warning birds are more sensitive to hypoxia than humans? How did they keep the birds alive? Consider a boatload of feces. That is shit. Urine. And flatulence. Cows produce a buttload of methane gas. All the time. Humans also. Is it reasonable to provide only a single hole for ventilation and breathing without air movement ventilation? With the enclosure filled with warmer air, a single hole would not allow fresh oxygen to entire an enclosed pressurized vessel without air pumps or through ventilation. Is it reasonable to design a submersible boat capable of rotating axially 
through every possible axial orientation while transporting a boatload of humans and animals, a year's supply of food and fresh water, human and animal waste, storage, etc., without orthopedic injury and chaos. Visualize adults, children, flocks, and herds rocking, tossing, flipping over, traveling that way for a year. A year. Could you ride for 344 days and nights with your children flipping all over the place on a boat which is repeatedly buried in the depths of the sea with flocks and herds crashing over each other with urine and feces soaked litter box material spilling into their bedding, into their food, into their fresh water and clothing as the ship continually flopped upside down? Although it is theoretically possible to design an internal self-containing ball-bearing-based ballast cargo system, which relied upon gravity to maintain upright orientation, is it reasonable to assume that they had utilized such a technology with construction materials available at that time by those lacking the foresight to even provide breathing or seeing? <laughs> That's a hell of a question, isn't it? He's got a fantastic point here. How would you pour all the human and animal urine and feces out of one hole for a year. Is it reasonable that after 344 days of being tossed violent tempest seas that all eight boats would arrive together at the same location at essentially the same time? How could eight uncontrolled vessels tossed by violent storms maintain identical speeds and course for nearly a year. And that is the issue, isn't it? That is very, very interesting. So that's the gist of Dr. W's discussion. And I think it's a very powerful reminder that the church leaders themselves tell us, oh no, search the scriptures, ponder them, think through their implications. Well, Dr. W did that with this Jaredite barges, these eight floating submarine-type vehicles. And just basic A, B, C, 1, 2, 3 logic completely destroys any reality to this tale as actual history. And Joseph Smith apparently intended it to be seen 
such as being actual history. This really did happen to this group of people. Uh, and there's just no way. It just didn't happen. There is just not enough thought into this. It does not read like an account of people who actually did it. Compared to Dr. W's Ocean Travels on Ship. This one is obviously a made-up story. So that's interesting. I'll be curious to see how the apologists deal with this issue. So, oh, hey, it looks like 29 likes. Thank you. You guys are very generous. All right. So what are you talking about? That's about all I have to present. Yeah, baby. Oh, Richard Peckjack. Good to see you again. Uh, T.O. Mark yeah. Oh, Dan Vogel's taken to task Hugh Nibley, which is a good thing. Yeah, the whole idea of the vessels rocking back and forth, upside down and then back upside down, and then back upside down, uh, with all those animals rolling around in all of that crap and pee, and the food, of course, getting ruined, the water, the vessels holding the good drinking water being broken and all that. Th that's just because it does say once you go under with these terrific storms and waves like a whale, I'll bring you back up. So you're bobbing up and down this way. You're pitching this way. And there's no rudder or keel. So you could be going end over end as well with if you went, if you went end over end, everything would fall toward that peaked part. And then, I I mean, talk about broken bones and concussions and black eyes and guts being spilled at and death, etc. And yet all the Book of Ether describes is they did huddle and sang hymns to the Lord and hoped for a miracle. And they got it. They were delivered after 344 days. I mean, B.H. Roberts in his study of the Book of Mormon obviously hit the nail on the head. He said, this is a story told by an inexperienced boy telling stories. <laughs> that That's what this amounts to. So... Anyway, <laughs> hey, Lashram, good to see you. Oh, Mike Langley, good to see you. I'm glad you're here. Paul, excellent. Good to see you. Is this a Book of Mormon evidence meeting? Yes, it is. It is a Book of Mormon analysis of the Jaredite Barges story, which fails as an actual historical account. That's what tonight's discussion has demonstrated. I think pretty pretty conclusively. Yeah, singing hymns. That's what they said. Yeah, singing hymns solves all the problem. You've got animals and weight and all that. And if the boat flips over this way, all you have to do is th sing praise to the man who can mend with Jehovah, <laughs> and nobody would get hurt. <laughs> of course, then that would have been an anachronism too. <laughs> oh. They would have been singing about the brother of Jared, of course, because he also communed with Jehovah, right? Oh. <laughs> okay. 
Well, oh, Mr. Natural, good to see you. Thank you for showing up. Uh, yeah, they could have chased out naughty thoughts by singing out hymns, but when the when the when the ship spun all the way around, they couldn't have prevented the uh, thirteen hundred pound cow from crushing them on this on the ceiling when it flipped over. So, yeah, the hymns are good for something, but not much for what they needed. So, anyway, oh, Princess Fart Sparkles. <laughs> Behold, you have arrived. What a handle. Holy cow. Well, that's interesting because we were just talking about animals' uh, farts and human farts in the Jaredite barges. So perhaps you've come to the right place tonight, Princess Fart Sparkles. Uh, people just crack me up, don't they? Lash from, one th or lash from 32. Good to see you, Teresa Pittman. Welcome. Glad you're here. Kenzo Fish Office USA, thank you for showing up. Good to see you. KG, you're going back to church. Awesome. Just don't go by way of the Jaredite barges. You may not make it. It might take you too long. <laughs> you should have left a year ago. <laughs> oh. All right. Debbie Joe, welcome. Glad you're here. Good to see you. KG, good to see you. Thank you for showing up. Cheers to you also. Yeah, this is a great cruise. Cruise. It went over like a fart in church. <laughs> oh, Lorena, you're cracking me up. That's funny. Uh, I, I've done pretty good recovering from COVID. Thanks, Mark. Yeah, I, I'm doing okay. I, I still don't have the stamina, but I, I really don't feel... Of course, and today it's 98 degrees. In the excessive heat, I have to watch how long I'm outside uh, because I do wear out. But, but I'll confess, it, of course, and on a Sunday afternoon, you know, the Lord created Sunday afternoons for naps. And I did get a good hour nap before I got online here with you guys. So, And, and I'm feeling pretty good. So, hey, Jason Smith. I haven't read Infinite Method Method Infinite yet. I don't even have it. They will be mailing it to me shortly. But I will, and I will be discussing it. So thank you for asking, Jason. Have you read it? Do you have your copy? I pre-ordered a copy, and they said it wouldn't be here until about August 9th. So. Oh, 101 in Arizona. That's too warm. Of course, the 98 isn't far behind it, you know. Uh, you wouldn't make it, KG. Don't do it. <laughs> uh, uh, I don't. Uh, I don't have a website with a reading list available, but I should develop one. I'm not... Oh, did you, Jason? You got a review copy. Well, lucky you. I wish I would have got one. Cry many. It's like I've been forgotten by my friends. <laughs> I, I actually helped Joe research a lot of that book. Uh, him and I had some great talks on Freemasonry, man. I'm sure sorry to hear about his illness, darn it. That really upsets me. But, you know, we're all eventually destined to greater places and better times. So that's that's the theory, and I'm just going with it. Hey, A.J. Adams 5. 
Good that you're here. All right. I am going to call it a night. Um, I'm, I'm probably a little bit short. Not bad. Not bad, though. Yeah, no. Yeah, you're right, uh, Doug. I don't have the humidity here. Our heat is a dry heat. Thank goodness. I my mission was in Missouri and Illinois, so I know about the humidity. We were we were having 98 degree days with 88 percent humidity sometimes, and oh my gosh, that just about killed me. I'd never felt so humid. I had no idea humidity could get that bad, man. It was tough. Burrow bikes. I'll read it later. Yeah, I, I don't have time to go back through it all. Sorry. Yeah, I'm just skimming and browsing real quick. I just wanted to say hi to all of you and recognize you. Uh, recognize as many of you for showing up as I could anyway. Looks like we had a real good crowd tonight. Thank you all for showing up. I appreciate all the support and help. Uh, don't forget to hit the like button and don't forget to send in a donation. Go to the backyardprofessor.org. Donate there if you would. I would appreciate it. All right. 46 likes. Wow. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you, Doug. It's always awesome with you guys. Yeah, baby. Yeah, baby. That's for my buddy, Mark Crispin. <laughs> yeah, you, oh, you're ruining me. <laughs> All right, you guys. Good to see y'all. Debbie Joe. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You betcha. My good pleasure. Okay, good, good. Yeah, baby. Okay, hey, don't forget Wednesday night, Mormonism Live. I missed last Wednesday. I had a, a business party I had to go to, a business picnic, a company picnic. It was good food, too. So, uh, But we will see you Wednesday night live at Mormonism Live. And next Sunday at 6 o'clock, if not earlier, if I do a surprise live session, you never know. So be sure and subscribe so that when I do get on, it'll give you a reminder and then you won't miss it. So you can always watch it on video anyway. So anyway, all right. Yep, I'm still kicking, Dan Vogel. Thank you very much. It's good to see you here all the time. I appreciate you guys' support. So you guys take care. This is me signing off. Until next time, be good to well have fun. And remember, yeah, baby, to a good life. Yeah, that's a good thing. Definitely. <laughs>